This is the Future of Cyber Risk podcast, brought to you by Team Cymru. I'm your host, David Monier, fellow at Team Cymru. Let's jump right into today's episode. Hey, everyone, and thanks for listening to another episode of the Future of Cyber Risk podcast. Today, I'm speaking with Eric Rasmussen, Global Head of Cybersecurity and Risk Management at Grobstein Treatiple, a leading consultation firm offering accounting, litigation support, taxation, assurance, and cybersecurity and business consulting services. Eric, thanks for chatting with us today. So I've known Eric, I've known you for a long time. It's been great to see you uh, move in, around in your career, but obviously our listeners haven't had the chance to meet you before. So before we get started, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself, your experiences, and how you got to where you're at? Well, dude, thanks, Dave, for having me on the podcast. I definitely have taken a different path. I was a Secret Service agent, was the primary job I had for most of my career for about nine or 10 years. However, to get there, definitely not how it's written. I was actually a history major in college and, and thought I was going to maybe become a professor or a writer. My dad has that background, and I was kind of interested in, in the things that he did. But about the end of college, something interesting happened. There were a really like interesting set of domestic terrorism attacks, which of course is interesting with Kaczynski's uh, passing over the last couple of days. But there was, you know, the Unabomber was arrested in the late 90s. And then also the uh, Oklahoma City bombing occurred and there was the Columbine attack. And that was all while I was in college. And then I had the very simple concept of recruiting. There was a secret service agent in Los Angeles where I went to college and I started talking to him and learning about all these world events. And by the end of my college time, I was like, I'm interested in law enforcement. So I did what anybody does when they're interested, but not sure. And I punted and went back to school and did some more school. So I was on the cuffs of maybe joining the military. Actually, it was looking at the Marine Corps to maybe go in as an officer out of college and then learned about law school. I didn't have any lawyers in my family. And it was interesting to strike out to a different profession. I knew that lawyers were in all these federal law enforcement agencies. That was a really great advanced degree to have. And it gave me a, an interesting legal and intellectual challenge. And so I was always in, you know, strong at reading and writing and, and comprehensive reading and critical thinking. And so I went to law school. In law school, I went between what they call your 1L and 2L. I was an intern over up at uh, Fort Lewis in Fort Lewis, Washington, which is now a joint base with the Air Force and the Army. And I was an intern for the Judge Advocate General Corps, the JAG Corps. And I spent a summer there. It was actually my very first day was the day that McVeigh was executed for the Oklahoma City bombing, June 2001. And that's also an interesting time frame because that's, you know, three months before 9-11. In fact, I was in New York about three months before to attend my brother's graduation from his school. And so there was just all these things happening in my life and in the world that was just kind of converging. And my second year, between my second and third year, I was a um, an intern at a local prosecutor's office in Tacoma, Washington. I was going to school up in Seattle. And those two experiences just convinced me public service. So I knew that a lot of this was competitive. It wasn't going to be something that was just handed to me. I knew I had the aptitude and I just started applying to things at the end of law school. And so much of this is about the time it takes to do background checks. I did a lot of polygraph exams. Finally got connected with the Secret Service when I was about 25 or 26. Started my career there. Uh, this is where I met you. And I also didn't have any computer security background. My brother is actually a computer science professor on the East Coast, but I had zero background in that. I just kind of fell into that. 
And the service, as anybody knows has worked with them, has really developed a cadre of investigators with that background. And I did all the training that you can do in the Secret Service. And after about nine or 10 years, had a lot of supervisors and colleagues that had left to go to the private sector, probably had talked to you about leaving at some point, and then went into uh, the private sector for mostly cybersecurity and some physical security, and went to a couple of multinationals, then finally settled on consulting, which is where I'm at now, which I've been doing for about six, seven years. And I love it. I have a very diverse day, which I know we'll get into, but it has absolutely been the the sum of my all my backgrounds points to a very active consulting career, which we can talk about. Yeah, excellent. You know, I'm not surprised at all, you know, knowing you as well as I do, I'm not surprised that, you know, call to service uh, was your motivator. And I'll tell you, though you didn't go that route, you would have made a fine Marine Corps officer. Uh, I can assure you of that. I spent enough years there that I can say your personality would have fit right in. Yeah. Well, another point about that, Dave, is I had veteran blood. My father was in the Coast Guard. My uncle was in the Navy, both professionals. Well, actually, my dad was enlisted, but my uncle was a pediatrician in the Navy for his entire career. He, he um, retired as, a, I believe, as a captain. And so, you know, that was something that did have an impression on me because I remember my uncle, it was actually absolutely related to being in Seattle because he lives in the Northwest. And I remember going to his house and seeing his flag from the ship that overflew. I think it was it was whatever ship was at Bremerton. He was at the Bremerton Silverdale area. He was at station. And I remember talking to him about that. I remember talking to my dad about his short stint. And it impacted me. Actually, a, a really very uh, tangible story about that was I was in my training class for the Secret Service. And as anybody knows, the part of that is in the Maryland area, which is right, you know, Baltimore's in Maryland. So a lot of times on the weekends, we go to Baltimore, Maryland, and there's that Inner Harbor area, right, where they have the USS Constitution. And, and people don't know this. They have a lot of other ships. And they had a Coast Guard ship called the Taney, T-E-N-E-Y. And I'm walking around on it with my friends at the time. And I take some photos and I send it to my dad, just, you know, just a proud son. Hey, you know, hey, dad, I love you. You know, showed you some stuff from the Coast Guard. He's like, Eric, you know what? That was the very first ship I ever was on. Wow. wow. And so without ever knowing, you know, it's the perfect thing of like a history guy, and the military and public service, like that meant a lot to me. And I know that meant a lot to him. So I took those pictures and I made, I made like a, you know, almost like a shadow box for him. And he was amazed to obviously see the ship, which was in as good of a condition as you can get for, for a Coast Guard ship from the 60s. And those kinds of connections are absolutely why I ended up where I ended up. Sure. And some of my closest friends to this day aren't necessarily, and you probably had this with the Marine Corps, aren't necessarily the people I worked with, but the people I trained with. Those are where I forged the brotherhood and sisterhood of the people that, that makes a huge difference now as a professional and in the business world. Yeah, absolutely. There's something to be said for a shared experience like that when, you know, a lot of people give up in training uh, and things like that. And you, you really make those bonds because you're in it together, you know. Anyway, that's fantastic. And the coincidence of being able to uh, see his first ship, that's got to be something else. I, I don't know what the odds are. And he's still at the house. Yeah, it's very powerful. And and I just wanted that to be something special for him because it was initially just like, oh, you think this is really cool, dad. But then that actual emotional bond. Oh, yeah. And, and like, that's where some of this stuff really matters is, and you know, as well as I do with any of those experiences and even in the in living your life and being more philosophical about the world, a lot of it is about enduring and finishing, not just finishing at the top of your class or finishing at the bottom. But the fact that you completed something, that's usually what matters is the is the ability to complete that evolution and know that you did something that maybe as you started that evolution, you weren't able to do. I, you know, 
the law school. I didn't know when I was 12 that I was going to become a secret service agent. I didn't know I was going to be the head of a cyber practice. I mean, those are all experiences that were new, but because of what happened prior, that helped me get through the newness and that anxiety or that that pressure you feel to try something you've never done before. Yeah, absolutely. You know, that's why uh, guys like Jocko Willink and uh, David Goggins, all the kind of the former Navy SEAL motivational speakers, you'll hear the Army Ranger guys say this as well, but they say, start every day with a task, you know, that you can complete, like making your bed or something like that, just to get your brain in the into the habit of solving something. And every day you've started where you've already accomplished something and then you just build on that accomplishment throughout the day. It's really, really powerful uh, stuff. I'm going to school right now at the Citadel for a leadership masters, and it involves a lot of off-record reading and, and a side reading. And I read some really good leadership books, and there was a really good Marine Corps book. As anybody knows, lots of Marines come out of the Citadel. And one of the maxims that this gentleman had was very similar to what you said. There was like four things to deal with every day. You need to find somebody and thank them for something. You need to fix something, you need to learn something, and you need to teach somebody something. Yeah. So kind of as part of that, where it seems like a very small thing, but you realize at the end of a the day, there's that sense of accomplishment. And so much of it is a marathon, right, Dave? Whether you're dealing with clients, difficult or not, whether you're dealing with, in your situation, you know, military strategy, so much of it is about taking left foot, right foot, left foot, right foot, and not always worrying about what's going to happen in an hour or a day or a month or a year instead of just, you know, what's in front of you, you know, and we'll talk about with consulting. That mindset is very, very applicable to what I do now. Yeah, absolutely. Congratulations on getting accepted to go to study at the Citadel, man. I wish I would tell you I was surprised to hear that I'm not at all. You know, congratulations though. That's oh, oh, they have a really powerful graduate college for working professionals that I would recommend. And I and I was gonna and not that you need to like what are the three tenets of the Rasmussen matrix or whatever, but always be learning, right? You should always be learning. And it's really important. That was kind of the thing that came out of COVID for me was what was I gonna do to sort of shift my life? And learning how to fly was at the top of the list. But others that I know weren't okay with that. So going back to school was the happy compromise. Sure. I know. I'm sure you have a mortgage lender who's glad you're not flying around in an airplane as well. Yeah. Or an insurance carrier. Although in California now, nobody wants to insure California homeowners. If you've been hearing about that nonsense. No, I haven't. Yeah. We have our own problem here in Florida. It's the same things going on here in Florida. It's like insurances have all gone up uh, in some cases 200% just this year. So let's talk about your day to day. So What's a day in the life as a security practitioner for or cybersecurity professional for yourself look like? And what are the, some of the exciting things you get to do? Sure. Well, I can break it down as sort of like an internal role and an external role, with the internal role being running my team, external role, which is, you know, working with clients. And so for me, just based on how my day-to-day work and life is, I start usually pretty early. It's very communication-savvy, phone calls, text messages, emails, as anybody knows, post-COVID, that has become the accepted, presumed way to communicate. I personally still like what we're doing here, which is looking at a person, meeting a person, but you know, some people just aren't ready for that yet. So a lot of it, especially on Mondays like today, it's about organizing my week and looking at what I need to work on, looking at what my team needs to work on, and starting to think about what I need to brief people on in terms of the expectations for the week. I, I learned from actually one of my clients who's a, is a managing partner at a law firm, you know, use the beginning of the week the plan as opposed to always thinking that like the end of Sunday should be that way. Cause I'm still doing what I can to balance off time with on time. And that's very hard to do. 
So internally, we start to plan the week. Who are we meeting with? What work needs to be done? You know, individual projects, forensics, things like that. Now with external facing stuff with clients, it's the same thing, but you know, as the head of a project. So in my role as a principal of a firm, much like being a managing director or a partner at a law firm, it's very much like air traffic control. Certainly I have some actual work. A lot of what I do are report writing and sometimes quality control of some of the forensic analysis. But ultimately, I'm in some ways, I'm a project manager. I'm helping schedule calls. I'm helping level expectations with clients. Everybody wants to please and serve their client, right? That's a huge part of consulting. But at the end of the day, they always have to feel like they're the only person you're talking to, which of course is not happening. So there's this weird interplay where they know you have other clients and you know you have other clients, but you want to make them feel special every time. It's not always easy because, you know, one reason or another, you're not in a good mood, they're not in a good mood. So it's a lot of communication and diplomacy. And then- Are they typically under duress? Like, are they, uh, you know, like- No. Incidents happened or- Good question. So my actual practice is very evenly split. We've got a wide array of the type of work we do. We definitely do incident response where there's always a lot of duress and stress, but that's like maybe a quarter to what we do, a third to what we do. We do a lot of strategic advisory work where somebody doesn't have the head of security or a CISO and they rely on us to provide some of that executive management, which involves obviously some leadership coaching in that. Then we have some ongoing, we, we, we have a, a slate of clients that just use us for overflow monitoring. If they have pools on their network that need to be looked at and tuned, we do that. And then there's this big other bucket, a lot of security testing, pen testing, vulnerability management, we help manage that. And then I would say a fifth category that's like a miscellaneous two is supporting the other areas of our firm that needs forensic support. We have a, a pretty robust accounting practice. And within that practice, there is a lot of bankruptcy and forensic accounting work where naturally there's data on servers and email and laptops and PDAs and mobile devices. They use us to extract that data for their financial analysis. So it's almost like a conduit to get to their work. It's not necessarily our focus, but we're there to support their, their mission. And so what you're asking about, that typically spends, you know, that's the bulk of my time on Mondays. And then almost like a like a pay period, the beginning and the middle of the month, I'm always checking who owes us money and checking in on on that because this is all well and good. But if you're not getting paid for it and you're not getting paid when you build your clients, then you're doing yourself a disservice and how you run your business. Yeah, no, that's 100%. That's uh, a regular problem, I think, for security practitioners, regardless of, of what industry they're serving. If you do contract work like that, uh, security or, or that type of advice is often seen as unimportant to people. So you tend to be like one of the first people that they'll skip out on just because the service is hard to put your finger on. It's not like a box of pencils where they see the inventory. Uh, it's unfortunate, but I have heard a lot of that. Yeah. And not just here in the United States, but from around the world. Yeah. Yeah. And if you ever analyze any of the command structures that exist, whether it's the military or the government or law enforcement, I definitely have hybrid roles where, you know, there's a lot of logistical coordination and there's also a ton, just a ton of like problem solving. You know, that's why you're there to consult is because there is a problem or a series of problems your client needs help with. They don't always expect you to solve it, but they expect you that you at least help them solve it. And sure. so you are inevitably dealing with somebody that's in trouble in some way, shape, or form. And so there is an art to some of that. And that's, again, where the, the diplomacy skills and the liaison skills that, that have 
you know, been tried and true in the government and, you know, as a Marine and, and talking to foreign fighters and things like that, like there is a lot of ways you need to kind of massage your relationship with your client or clients because, you know, how many times in a row do you talk to them and they're happy, right? Like if you have two times in a row, you're talking to them and they're in a good mood, something's not right, right? Like it's just like every other time or every third or fourth time, maybe they're thankful, but the rest of the time they're upset. And so what that means for me really is also being good at buffering my team from the client or other people in my firm, making sure that I'm the magnet for the problems and my team is covered and I'm the one that absorbs it. Because, you know, aside from just having the ability and that resiliency and capacity to take it from a mental toughness side, you know, a lot of my team's very young. And, you know, some of them are straight out of college or have only been in the workforce for a couple of years and have been in the workforce during COVID. So the ability to take heat from a client, and that's not necessarily in their DNA yet, and it's not necessarily their role. So if there's a problem, I'm always there. It's a personnel problem. I'm there to help manage that, as well as the actual day-to-day operation of whatever scope of services has been you know, required of us. Sure. That's, that's, I would say that that's actually probably one of the biggest challenges of consulting, is learning how to protect your client, but protect your team so that everybody wants to still work together. Because let's be honest, like the goal is obviously to anchor in with some of these clients and be there for them on everything because it helps you financially. But it also, the best way for this work is long-term relationships. Doing something for a week or two, you can derive very little from that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, reoccurring business is definitely the name of the game in consultation for sure. So let's talk about the broader industry. So what's something that you think most practitioners, whether they be executive tier like yourself, or even, you know, boots on the ground folks, what's something that you think that people get wrong about risk management? Sometimes I think the order of things is reversed. You deal with a lot of people that look at the technology or the software or the tooling first, and then the people, the human capital angle second, when you want that, whether you're advising somebody and, or they're telling you what they need help on you run into this problem where the technology, and, and this could not be more obvious with this chat GPT discussion that's you know come out since OpenAI you know, launched their product last fall. You still, for anything, right? Any weapon system, any technology system, however well it runs, 99.9% of them need a human at some point in that. Mm-hmm. You need to stop it, to analyze it. If you don't have the right human looking at that weapon system, it's not going to work, right? So I try to focus on reversing that order, helping them understand that the right people are involved, then working on if the right technology or if the right thing or the right widget is involved. Mm-hmm. Because I think what you have and what Cumry has been doing for years now, you learn that there is a dependency on technology to be the problem solver rather than the human influencing the technology to be the problem solver. Mm-hmm. And there's obviously a lot of debate that can go into that because some of this stuff can essentially run on its own. But until a human helps in that logical chain or that analysis chain, you're never going to be served properly as a consultant and or a client. That's yeah, probably primary observations, particularly with risk management. Yeah, absolutely agreed. In particular, getting people on board with the idea of what their risks are you have to connect with them as a person. Rabbi Thomas, our founder, his mantra has always been, we are in the people business with a technology slant, meaning like the technology just happens to be what we're going to talk about, but never forget that we're in this for the people. 
and it has like paid tenfold for us as far as being accepted in communities and really like, you know, my phone rings at three in the morning when a friend needs help. I've had people call me over weekends because they've had an incident on their network and they call and say, hey, what can you do? I never say, oh, call me back on Monday. You know, I answer that call right then and there and, and do what I can to help them get up, start helping them. And those people, they never forget that. You know, there's uh, just absolutely immense benefit from connecting with people. And one of the pitfalls is we are doing all this in the news cycle that exists. And the security researcher community sometimes does itself a disservice and the general public a disservice when certain things start to hit the news clients almost always think it applies to them. When you are talking specifically about some, you know, O-Day that has just been announced and your client calls you in a tizzy and you're like, you know what? None of that even applies to you because you don't even use that piece of software or you don't right. use that piece of infrastructure, so you don't care. But there is also sometimes a FOMO problem of like, oh, well, the Chinese or the Iranians or whatever fill in the blank nation state or whatever, you know, a code name you want to give a group, they inevitably must be interested in our our data. And you know, as well as I do, that no, that is not always the case. You have an interesting product or you're an interesting company, but that doesn't mean that the wolves are at the door. And so that risk management conversation is all about right-sizing. It's all about letting them know what they really have to worry about or advising them on what they have to worry about versus what they think they should worry about. Because sometimes that's two different conversations and that's hard. Because you are also trying to naturally have them for a partner, a business partner, and maybe something that you're working on in a, in a specific scope of service is actually a better revenue stream for you, but it's not what they need. And that's actually where some of that business acumen comes in, which is knowing the right way to sell something to a client. And I was going to say with risk management, a second observation is the inevitability of trying to sell everything to your client instead of what they need. And that in and of itself is a risk. Oh, yeah. No, absolutely agreed there, too. You know, I find a lot of people, they forget that their goal, like everything worthwhile in life has risk. That's why it's worthwhile. Although if there was no risk, everyone would just go out and do the thing. But a lot of people, they let the risk, in particular young CISOs, or let me rephrase that, new CISOs, oftentimes get caught in this trap of forgetting that the business is the priority. And that they start to see everything through this lens of all risk must be avoided. They don't realize that sometimes you just accept risk, you know, like, you know, using the nation state things, for example, you know, no amount of controls, no amount of policy you can apply is going to take your name off of a dry erase board in some targeting office at the nation state unit headquarters. Nothing you can do will change that. But also it's unlikely that something you could do would put your name on that board either. But people, they get caught up in these kind of Hollywood movie plot type of scenarios. And to them, the risk gets to be so big that it's almost like limiting their critical thinking skills, limits their ability to actually function, to do their job because they're hung up on one small piece of it. So thinking about skills, what skills, aside from connecting to people, human skills, what other skills would you say are most critical for practitioners to succeed? Several. I would still think, and this absolutely is my influence with my academic background, reading and writing skills are still immensely important in security. Anybody that has this background, there is certainly a technical aptitude that you need. Mm -hmm. And, you know, particularly with specific domains, you know, networking, things like that, cryptography, that's important. But 
primarily because most of your stakeholders are CEOs, COOs, general counsel, external law firms, people that aren't from that world. You still need to articulate what you're working on. And that involves obviously a lot of writing. And so I I see that all the time with the, the team that I have and the clients that we have that you need to still be good at your writing. And I'm not, I'm not just talking about the basics of like learning when to capitalize and, and grammar, because we all, especially with email, we all get lazy sometimes, but more about how to write an incident management report, how to write a report of investigation, how to write you know policy, how to write a pen testing report, things like that are still extremely important. And then second to that, and I mentioned it earlier, is uh, always be learning. The ongoing education component, I can't stress enough you know, certainly having the right initials after your name helps you with, uh, you know, job placement and gravitas. But one of the best things about having any of those is the fact that they all have ongoing education requirements, which keeps you sharp. It's no different than being in law enforcement or, or being in the military or being a gun enthusiast and needing to train at the range all the time. It's a perishable skill and you need to stay on that. So that desire and interest to continually learn is immensely invaluable. And I would say a third category and I don't know how to say it properly without it sounding like a cliche, but it's people skills. It's more of like diplomacy skills, polished skills, learning how to talk to people. Because you learn in this business that you're really dealing with some chippy people and that often your clients and the personalities are always there. And it's just part of like going along to getting along and, and a team dynamic and chemistry, but knowing when not to send an email, Right. No, I went to take a phone call or to make a phone call that is going to draw the eye or somebody else. Some of that stuff is really rarely observed unless there's a problem. It's it's kind of like slinking in the background where, oh yeah, no, I, I could have written an email and went on blast, but instead I took a breath, I took a day and I called the person the next day and everything worked out. So that kind of thing is important. Like a corollary to all three of those, and this might sound a little odd, is dress code. We're still struggling in 2023 with the right decorum in the office or the right decorum on a call or the whatever. And I still come from a world where wearing a collared shirt, wearing a suit, like you need to make sure your dress code is, there's a symmetry to it with who you're working with, whether it's your team or your client. And the easiest way to solve that is, is talk to your team and your client as to what, what you want to have. Because I can't tell you any more than anybody else that knows this in the world that first impressions go a long way. And if you're on a call with somebody and you're wearing a, a tank top because you just got out of the gym or you're wearing a you know a tacky suit like that, that kind of stuff matters. And and this image centric focus can apply to all those things, you know, clean documents, dress code, and and I'm not talking about facial thing, but you I think you maybe know what I'm talking about, which is absolutely all comes down to just one word, professionalism. Yeah. The, the world is dying for professionalism these days. Yeah. I would agree. Climate, global climate, whatever. I call it command professionalism. Yeah. That's, that's yeah. the term that I use for it because it's not just being yes, sir, no, sir, that type of professionalism, but actual professionalism in the sense that you exude the characteristics that other people see you as this person knows what they're doing. I'll follow them, whether it's your advice, your lead whatever, because your customer, right? When you're consulting your customer, you need to make sure they're convinced that they should listen to what you say, not just because they're paying you, but so that they actually feel confident, right? Because they need your advice. They need your help. And for them, if they're looking at somebody, like you said, who's got you know flip-flops on and a tank top, they're going to think, wow, this guy doesn't even take this seriously. 
Why should I follow him? Why should I listen to him? So that command professionalism is super, super important. And like you said, not to be overdoing it either, because you don't want to come in and be, you know, overdone either. Because then people will say, who's this guy think he is, you know? Right. And that's where I've borrowed a rule from the Secret Service, which we always kind of called it like, I don't know if it had a real name, but like the one up rule, the one level above rule, which is however they might be dressed, you know, you could always just maybe be one more dynamic, more dressy, right? So you mentioned flip-flops and shorts. Well, maybe you have polo and khaki. You don't need to be in this three-piece suit or a tuxedo or whatever. Mm-hmm. But that at least demonstrates, to your point, the symmetry. But also, just because they're dressed a certain way, they don't necessarily expect you to be dressed that way. Because particularly in security and, and in cybersecurity, there is a huge disconnect between a lot of that base level of professionals out there and what they're used to in terms of how to dress and what we know Fortune 500 clients want to look like, want you to look like. Now, everybody knows the hooded sweatshirt at a startup in Silicon Valley look, but at the same time, you want to go talk to a Fortune 10 bank, we know what they look like. You just have to go to see and watch Squawk on the Street to know what every CEO is dressed like. And so you have to learn that. And sometimes you you can never, you, well, not sometimes, you can never go wrong with asking. That's yeah. other People are afraid Absolutely. to we assume, and we all know what they say about assuming. That's right. No, and you can go wrong by not asking. That's for sure. So if I can wind back just a a little bit, you were talking about, you know, the power of communication in particular in writing. Do you use any specific tools? Do you have a specific target audience that you write to? Like, do you avoid certain words? Do you always try to laymanize anything technological? Do you have any tips for that? Because I find a lot of people in our industry really overdo the technical writing and they lose decision makers. So as someone who has to appeal to boards, has to talk to senior executive decision makers that don't have technical backgrounds, what's your rules of thumb? That's a great question. And that's broken down into two parts is, again, that's where I go back to asking the client or the client's attorney what they want, what kind of report they want. That's a good signal. And almost always, which is another thing that we've borrowed from my government days, and and you know more than anybody as a Marine Corps guy, is never be afraid to follow this rule. Tell them what you're going to talk about, talk about it, and then tell them what you just talked about. Yeah. Uh, And always, always have some sort of summary or a one-pager or something that's like the cover that breaks down everything. Because let's be honest, so much about documentation is just to document it. And almost none of it's going to be thoroughly read. So that's fine that you have that, but at least have some talking points that summarizes it so somebody can look at it and distill it down. That's actually very hard to do because sometimes you think if it's not in the summary, it's not important, but that's not the way it works. So those are some basics we use. And from a quality control standpoint, I'm always very big on having at least one other person read what you've written. So then you have at least a second voice, even if that's not necessarily the optimal voice There's a second voice out there because one of the things I've learned by being the child of a writer and doing a lot of writing in law school and since then is you tend to be very biased and prejudiced because you're the only one hearing it in your head when you're typing it out. And you have to learn the third party or the fourth party that's going to see this doesn't necessarily think and write the way you do. So you have to adjust accordingly. And you're not writing prose. You're not writing a Stephen King novel. You're not writing uh, Lord of the Rings. So when it comes down to really like simple grammatical things, short sentences, active verbs, making sure that you can use one word instead of five, like all that kind of stuff. I mean, there's probably a whole class out there on how to write as a consultant that many of us can teach, but 
Sure. It's also okay to be critiqued by attorneys. <laughs> Having Absolutely. been in myself, don't be afraid of the red lines. Don't take it personal. Don't take it personal. Yeah. That's just more time you're going to bill to rewrite the report. It took me at least a decade to learn to stop writing conversationally and start writing instructionally. Because like you said, you have this narration happening in your head. Well, in my case, I would default to how it, it was that I communicated vocally. And vocally, you have hand gestures, you have you know all kinds of body language, you have a bunch of things that actually go into that. But your words, if you record them standalone and then play them back, which is what writing essentially is, if you write that way, it becomes problematic. So it took me a long time to realize like, don't assume that anybody understands anything about what you're talking about. So at least give them enough reference or enough to frame the point that you're trying to make. But it took me a long time to figure that out. So I've seen people who have been leveraging the large language model stuff, chat GPT, you know, whatnot, where they paste their, what they want to write, they paste their first report into it. And then they say, make this better, you know, and uh, I'm going to be interested to see how this manifests, right? Because like you said, we're only a couple months into ChatGPT being so available. It'll be interesting to see if we have a, I hate to call it a literary revival, but it would be interesting to see if people get more accustomed to reading because reading gets easier on, on the audience. And I think that it's a good thing that that's existing. I've been following some of that stuff closely, particularly because there's been some cases now, I think out of New York, where lawyers have gotten some hot water or using chat GPT to write legal briefs that had incorrect citations for cases that didn't exist. Ooh. So I say use it, but remember to source it and remember to quality control it. I, I think that that LLM stuff is really great. And the natural language for all the, all the technology behind it is wonderful because again, it is obviously culling from millions and billions of sources. And so it's no different than you just go. I mean, it's different than going onto uh, Google and searching stuff when you're writing something. But the one distinction I'll definitely make is goes back to my first point is making sure you know what you're supposed to be writing because how you write a declaration for court or an expert report for court versus an incident response report for legal counsel, those are all different things. One of them is meant to be a persuasive thing and the other one is meant to be a report of findings, which is not necessarily supposed to be persuasive. It's supposed to be agnostic and following the evidence. And so all of those things make a difference in how you write and understand that it's a work in progress, that how I write now versus how I write five to 10 years ago is wildly different. And you also have to understand, talking about this way, my process, let's say it's a declaration or it's an expert report. My process is always to start with just a blank Word document and start out writing that way. And then I'll put it into some sort of format that an attorney wants to see because the ideas are first and then the structure is later. Some people fall into the trap of cut and pasting into an already existing document and two things go wrong is the formatting and all that gets screwed up because of however you did that. And sometimes you don't look close enough and you've incorporated something from an older document that has nothing to do with what you're talking about. And it just, you know, it looks soupy. That would be where the writing part is extremely methodical. And from the consulting tip, always be upfront with your clients that they are going to be charged for written reports. Don't ever cave and just say, I'll give you a report. Because if you really are good at it, it's going to take several hours to put in that time and your team's time to craft something important. And then the last thing I'll say is, while it's important to have a narrative style that has you know complete sentences, subjects, and predicates, don't be afraid to mix that up with figures and tables and visual things. So it's not just 2,500 pages of 
a narrative. If anybody's ever written or read things like the Mueller report or the Warren Commission report or any of these congressional reports, they're extremely interesting, but they're extremely painful because they almost never have anything visual. It's sure. literally 50 pages of paragraphs with footnotes on each page, which is exactly how you would expect Congress and lawyers to write. So make it, that's where you, you turn on your cyber brain or your security brain where you want something visually interesting and a little more creative that helps the reader and, you know, moves the reader along in anything you're writing. Sure. Absolutely. See, look how talented you are, man. I, I mentioned at the beginning, you had a diverse background. We started talking about cyber. Next thing you know, we're talking about communicating and writing. Like, uh, uh, Well, there's a very real reason that it matters to me. Is it's, you know, someday I think I've pondered, I've, you know, several ideas about writing. There's some stuff out there. You know, part of writing I've learned is to just do it. And let's talk about the ideas they have, and then they just never do it. And if you read any books about how to write any successful author, it's just like going out and hitting the weights and running on the treadmill or running outside. You just have to do it. And eventually you'll figure out if you're good at it or how to get good at it. Sure. And, you know, the real thing is, is the time to do it. A lot of writers turn it into a job where from eight to four, they write. And then 401, they're with their family or when they're with their friends. Depends on your process. And that being said, it matters because, you know, some, I have some ideas, you know, for my, my master's, there's going to be a final thesis I have to write that might jumpstart something that could be, you know, published someday. But it's, that's a whole other conversation that we can have because I think that the security space, especially the cybersecurity space, is missing scholarship. There's a lot of really good blogs and a lot of good like findings that are related to a specific piece of malware or a specific hack, but sometimes it doesn't get synthesized. And unfortunately, a lot of what you see is written by lawyers and chock full of policy and amendments and statutes. And that that works for a specific audience, but not for the broader audience. When you hear, like you read Blink or The Black Swan, there's a lot of great stuff out there that's nonfiction that covers a lot of interesting ideas. Anything that Friedman's written, there's a lot of that out Friedman, there. Friedman, The Economist? Yes. There's, okay. there's a lot of stuff that you can, you can read, but the cyber world doesn't have a lot of it. There's, trust me, we can talk about good books on cyber. But you could you could always use a few more on the shelf. I know that. Sure. Well, Eric, I look forward to your book. I uh, would definitely pick up a first copy. That'll be our next podcast. Absolutely. I, let's hope that would be fantastic. So, hey, being mindful of time, I know we're coming up to the end here. One final quick shot, and you don't have to get super verbose on your answers, but three pieces of actionable advice for uh, cyber risk and cyber practitioners out there. So, depending on what level you're you're at or you think you're at, I would say networking skills, learning your networking skills. Don't be afraid to uh, hone those with meetings and conferences. Never turn down a speaking engagement or a panel engagement. I think cyber professionals in particular, it's a valuable thing, but in general, any professional should be good at that because that's where that ongoing learning thing is important. Pick a couple of areas. Don't think that you can do everything. The domains are unlimited for cybersecurity. However, your time is not. So you need to learn how to be good at a couple of things as opposed to average at everything. I think that that's something that is very difficult, particularly in this world where there's so much amazing information out there, right? Just look at all the newspapers you can read every day. And then next thing you know, it's four o'clock in the afternoon. You need to pick something, you know, in shooting, you know, it's called aim small, miss small. If you have a small sort of mindset, you just want that thing to burst with information and knowledge and power. That's going to be more effective than trying to fill up a hundred buckets of water. And then all of a sudden you're like, geez, man, it's all evaporated because I haven't concentrated my interest in my intellect. What that is, you might not know what it is, but I would say that you need to concentrate on a few domains as possible and be really good at those. The third thing 
that I've learned is kind of twofold. If you started out as a technical person, you will have to learn how to be a non-technical person. And if you started out as a non-technical person, you're going to have to learn how to be a technical person. And what I mean by that is, as you've heard, I have a history background, very social sciences heavy, not a programmer, not somebody that was working on Cisco firewalls as a kid, but I need to learn that space. I don't need to master it, but I need to learn it because there has to be a healthy respect for the people that do know that stuff. And the vice versa of it is, is those folks that are the people that just know that inside and out, they need to learn how to write. They need to learn how to talk to lawyers. They need to learn speak at events because it is no different than being an NCO or an officer and learning how each other's worlds work because that's the only way the team will work and strategy will work. And you know, when you come to lo- the idea of leadership, you have leaders, you have followers, and you have the context and the common goals. Unless you know a little bit about each other, that kind of goes to almost like cultural competence. If I don't understand and appreciate what the IT professional does, how is he or she going to appreciate what the cyber professional does? And I think that helps that helps round out some of the things that a, a young professional might be interested in. Absolutely agreed. So if folks wanted to follow your work, in particular, know when you printed your book, how can they find you? LinkedIn, any kind of social media? Our firm has LinkedIn. Our firm has social media. We have uh, a website, gtlp.com. And then you have my LinkedIn profile, which is just my name. You'll see um, I'm out in Los Angeles. You'll learn from the podcast, my background, you know, connect with me there. I'm very reachable. I still do speaking every so often. I still do some writing. So I'm always up to mentor and lead where we need to. And then the last thing is, is like, you know, I'm here to help people. There's a whole other physical security world we didn't talk about. And, and there's a whole core world that I know you know about that that's probably the focus of another podcast, but I'm available. Come seek me out and uh, really appreciate being able to have uh, Team Comrade talk to me today and invite me onto this. Excellent. Eric, thanks so much for joining us. As always, an energizing conversation. I didn't expect us to spend so much time talking about writing, but that's, you know, uh, you take advantage of the expertise when it comes along and you certainly uh, excelled there. So thanks so much for that. Thanks so much for the listeners out there. Uh, if you have more any questions for Eric, you heard him. He's invited your questions. So uh, we'll follow up from there. So that's it for today. Thanks for joining us, Eric. Thank you. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Future of Cyber Risk podcast brought to you by Team Cymru. For the latest episodes, please visit team-cymru.com or search Future of Cyber Risk on your podcast platform of choice. Thanks, and we'll catch you on the next episode.